Hey out there, welcome to our monthly live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center podcast here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks as ever to producer and friend Pam Stack for making this monthly opportunity available to us at the Conroy Center. I'm your host, Jonathan Haupt, the Conroy Center's executive director and also the embarrassingly proud co-editor of the award-winning anthology, Our Prince of Scribes, Writers Remember Pat Conroy. This month on our show, July 2021, I am honored and thrilled to have with us New York Times bestselling writer Grady Hendricks. Grady is the author of the horror novels Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, He Sold Our Souls, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, and most recently, The Final Girl Support Group, which is about a week and a day old. Several of those novels, including the Final Girl Support Group, are now being adapted for film and TV series, which I hope we'll talk about later in our conversation tonight. Grady is also the author of the Bram Stoker award-winning nonfiction book, Paperbacks from Hell, a history of the horror paperback boom of the 1970s and 80s. His writings have also been featured in Playboy, Slate, Village Voice, New York Post, Film Comment, and Variety, as well as in Strange Horizons and the anthology The Mad Science. Guide to World Domination. Grady himself has been profiled in The New Yorker. He lives and writes in New York, but occasionally returns here to his native South Carolina low country. Welcome to the show, Grady. Thanks so much for making time tonight. No, thanks for having me, man. That's a good introduction. I hope I live up to it. If you don't, uh, if you die during the broadcast, it will become that much more memorable, too. So let's keep in mind that may be an, an option. And that's the great thing. We're live. Like anything can happen. It seems like a good idea every month until, you know, it's not. But this is definitely a good idea tonight. I want to I mention for folks uh, just a little bit of backstory about how I became introduced to you because I am sort of newly arrived in the Grady Hendrix camp. I was at SEBA, the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance trade show, 2019, I believe, up in Spartanburg. And you were there uh, at that point pitching a Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which just had, you know, the, the most unique title and sensibility about it of anything going on at that trade show. And there is this horribly awkward sort of speed dating scenario where authors are, are made to get up and move very quickly from table of bookseller to table of booksellers and spend 30 to 40 seconds trying to say something sensible that's going to sell dozens, if not hundreds of books. Uh, and there you were sort of working, working the tables. And I happened to be seated coincidentally with Jill Hendricks, seemingly no relation, but the owner of Fiction Addiction Bookstore in Greenville. And we were both just blown away by uh, the concept of what you had at that point for Southern Book Club's Guide uh, to Slaying Vampires. And I later had the opportunity to review that for the Charleston Post and Courier. And we've had you virtually thus far in Beaufort at our Conroy Center for last year's um, Low Country Book Club convention. And it's just been such a pleasure to get to know you through those opportunities and, and to see your work and to get to know the people who follow you and have been doing so for much longer than I have. Uh, what a fascinating world you live in. <laughs> it, it is a world. But, you know, that SEBA thing, man, that's one of the best book events I've ever done in terms of like uh, re- effort versus payout. I mean, you know, independent bookstores are such the heart of this business, and that's just such a uniquely situated event. I got to say, there's probably 
seven bookstores I met that night and that I still do regular events with. Um, they're just like, you know, and it's, it's, they've gone through the pandemic and they're just hanging on. And it's really, really amazing to see. I mean, I'm from Charleston. And when I was growing up, our one independent bookstore was chapter two downtown. And yep. I think we lost that. Um, I can't remember what year, but it was sort of replaced by, by a couple of Barnes and Nobles. I think now down to one Barnes and Noble. But we didn't get another indie bookstore until probably a decade later when Jonathan Sanchez and Blue Bicycle showed up. Uh, and now there's more, but it's just like, you know, these indie bookstores, it's like you lose them and they don't come back overnight, you know? And they are the absolute champions of, of the book world, certainly in the, in the South and, and arguably beyond that as well. But if you have SIVA bookstores on your side, you are, you are a very fortunate writer because they will stick with you, not just through a book, yeah. but through a career, uh, as you're seeing, certainly. And yes, Jonathan Sanchez, fantastic friend to us at the Conroy Center, uh, Polly Buxton from Buxton Books in Charleston yep. as well. Uh, good people, good people and good stores. And I celebrate every good thing that's happened to them uh, up in Charleston. So they're good folks to have on your side. Um, but let's let's back up a couple of steps and talk about how you enter this strange world of the profession of authorship to begin with. <laughs> because you started out in, in, in journalism. That's, if I understand correctly, where your writing life began. So how does one make the switch from that to the world of fiction and horror fiction in particular. You were such a nice, good boy. What, where did you go astray? <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, I was a journalist for a while. Um, and man, back in the day, you could make a really good living as a freelance journalist. I mean, I think it was about, I don't think it was until about four years ago, because I stopped doing that kind of thing back in 2008. And I think it was about four years ago, 2018 or so, when I actually had a year where I made as much money as I did back in the 2000s as a freelancer. I mean, it was just, and I did cultural coverage mostly, um, writing about movies and, and books and music and things. And, um, and then in 2008, that all went away. You know, we had the big economic crisis and there was a huge knock on effect in journalism because suddenly staff was getting cut. And let's face it, you didn't need five film reviewers. You needed two doing the work of five. Um, and so freelancers, especially, you know, a lot of editors were double, double team and stuff. And, and, you know, and so the work was gone. I mean, it was literally like a zombie movie or Sorry, it was metaphorically like a zombie movie in New York. It was freelancers roaming the streets, starving, you know, willing to work for a byline uh, just to get their name in the paper still. And it was crazy. And I kind of felt like I didn't really have another marketable skill except typing and so and writing. And so I thought, well, I'm going to double, double, double down on this terrible bet. And I'm going to start, I'm going to try to do fiction. Like no time like the present as everything's on fire. And I went to this writer's workshop called the Clarion Fantasy and Science Fiction Writer's mm -hmm. Workshop, writing workshop out at <laughs> UC San Diego. It's been around for a long time. And it was amazing to me because, um, it was about six weeks and it's about 20 something people, I think. And you, everyone there took it really seriously. And I have a hard time taking myself seriously. 
Everyone there was super serious about what they were doing, and it forced me to take it seriously because if I didn't, I'd be the jerk, right? And, like, no one wants to be the jerk. And it was amazing how much your game changes when you start taking what you do more seriously. And also when you write for that kind of very tight feedback loop, I really think, you know, it was a story a week. Everyone read it. They critiqued it out loud. And it was a, it was a bit of a, like, you know, hothouse and a, and a real pressure cooker. And I think that's kind of one of those places where you just, you either sort of like swim, sink or swim. Um, and I kind of swam. Um, and then I was writing short stories and things, but I don't really do well with short stories. They're too, too short. Books are, books are my game, but the problem is you've got to convince someone to let you write one. And so I, I, I co-authored some YA, uh, these books called The Magnolia League, set in Savannah with my best friend from high school, Katie Crouch. And, um, and that went okay. It was, the publisher wasn't the greatest. And um, we had a lot of headbutting with them. And then I co-authored a graphic novel cookbook my wife, who's a chef, did called Dirt Candy, a cookbook. And that was really fun. And I self-published a few things. But finally, a friend of mine who I'd gone to Clarion with, his wife, who I had made friends with, went to interview for an editor's job at Quirk Books in Philly. And she met this guy, Jason Rakulik, who interviewed her, who became my editor. And he said, you know, what authors would you want to bring? And she was like, I want to bring, would want to bring Grady Hendrix, blah, blah, blah. And so he got in touch with me. She didn't get the job. And he got in touch with me and said, send me a manuscript. And I, I had a novel I'd written about a haunted house. It was sort of a revisionist haunted house story set in Brickyard Plantation in Mount Pleasant. And I sent it over and he got back to me and said, I, I really don't like this book at all. But you're not a bad writer. And so, and I'd like to do a revisionist haunted house story. And, and we got to talking and we're like, you know, where would the haunted house be? And like people spend so much time at work. And, and he came, he was like an Ikea, a haunted Ikea. It was like done. And um, I came up with a pitch for it and he really didn't like that. And I came up with another pitch for it that he liked. And so I wrote it and um, it's, uh, and, and sort of we were off to the races and it did, it did well. It was called Horror Store. And it did well because it made really good money internationally because the whole world speaks Ikea. Um, I've never had a book sell that well ever since internationally. I mean, Thailand, South Korea, Germany paid more money for the book than, than Quirk Books did because they have so many Ikeas. Um, and so then after that, it was a two-book contract with Quirk, and I did My Best Friend's Exorcism, which was set in Mount Pleasant, and uh, things just kept rolling from there. There's, we have a rule on the show that you can't throw out the phrase uh, cookbook graphic novel and not expand upon that <laughs> a little bit. So, you know, I, I don't want to lose that. I do want, definitely want to circle back around to it. But what a rush it must have been to have gone from, you know, waking up in the morning uh, unemployed freelance journalist with the world sort of disappearing to having this make it or break it scenario. Uh, either you're going to be a novelist or you're not. And not that it's a, a direct path, but it's a, it's a, it was an obstacle you were able to surmount. So now things are happening and not just happening, but happening international. That must have felt in, incredible. Uh, first book out of the gate to have that kind of response from the globe for, for a concept that you had come up with so quickly. Yeah, no, it's great. And I understand what happened to a lot of novelists in the 80s, because cocaine would have made that even headier. Um, <laughs> you know, it, so I get it. Um, 
but Chevy Chase, I feel your pain. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it is. But it's also one of those funny things where if you're a freelancer, books are weird because you're always on the hustle, right? Like, like you know, you've got all these projects and eight of them don't pan out, but one of them does. And also books are very weird in the sense that by the time the book you've written comes out, you've probably completed or are pretty well into your next book. Like, do you know what I mean? And so it's this weird disconnect between the life you're living and the book you're talking about and where your head goes. So it's a really weird process. I get why if you're making movies, which is a much more, or even TV, which is a much more direct process, right? You shoot mm -hmm. and a couple of months later, it's out and people are seeing it everywhere. Um, it can really get disorienting. Um, it's still really fun, but it's still a grind. And it's interesting because um, I wasn't able to get an agent. You know, even with that horror store contract, I was going to agencies and saying, like throwing myself at their feet, saying, I've got a contract. I need to know if it's good or not. Represent me. And no one wanted to because, you know, they didn't consider Quirk a very prestigious. It wasn't one of the big four publishers at that time. Uh, right. Or maybe we were still on Big Five. And, you know, it was a small advance. I think it was like $12,000. And they just didn't see any upside to it. Um, I didn't get an agent until I'd published four books and won the Stoker Award. Um, and so that, it was a very weird process. Like, I, I sort of did this the wrong way around. From, from talking to uh, so many listeners of this show uh, sort of off the air, I know we've got a lot of folks out there who are burgeoning writers who are nowhere near far, uh, as far down the path as you are. And I'm sure that's fascinating that, to them to know that you've got contracts and you've got books and you've got some measure of success. And what you still don't have at that point is an agent uh, because that's – you know, that's not the, the circle as it's been uh, explained to them. That's not the plot of the writer's life as it's been explained to them. So I, I'm sure that's fascinating to a lot of folks tonight to discover that. So you, at, what, at what book do you have an agent for the first time? Is that for Final Girl Support Group or before that? No, it was actually um, sort of as I was writing Southern Book club i got an agent okay and then i commissioned him in on southern book club because he, he read a draft and and did all that and 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 was really helpful like sort of like negotiating where he could because it was a pre-existing contract but he was able to tweak a few things and um i think an agent makes uh in it makes an editor sort of like slow their role a little bit um which is always nice um but you know until then i just didn't have the juice to get an agent that would have done me good. You know what I mean? Mm, like if I yes. couldn't get one off the bat, I, what was the point after that? I was already on contract. They couldn't do much. Right. Sure. It doesn't make much sense at that point. And you've got some momentum that's already sort of carrying you forward in the absence of an agent. You mentioned uh, winning the Bram Stoker award. I want to circle back around to paperbacks from hell because I'm really curious how, or perhaps more importantly, why someone becomes an expert <laughs> on horror paperbacks from the 70s and 80s. How, how, do you, how did you immerse yourself in that particular subject matter? Yeah, it was pure stupidity, really. Um, <laughs> I love 
paperback swap shops, like not book, like I like bookstores, but I really love those bookstores where it's like people bring in grocery bags of romance novels and trade them in for credit. And for that in five bucks, they get to take out another grocery bag of romance novels. Just, I love those stores. They still have a Western section. They still have a horror section. Um, And I noticed in all these stores I would go into, um, they always had these huge horror sections and I didn't know the authors. I'm like, who's Barry Wood? Who's Elizabeth Ingstrom? Why do they have 900 John Farris novels? Who is J.N. Williamson? Um, and so I would just start reading them at random. And, um, and that, and that process sort of sped up a little, it was sort of a lackadaisical process, but it sort of kicked into overdrive when I grabbed this book at a dealer's bin for a buck called The Little People by John Christopher, who's very famous for the White Mountains mm. trilogy, which is a YA science fiction thing in the 70s. Um, and The Little People has this great cover by an artist named Hector Garrido that shows this Irish castle and this very sad man and woman standing beside it. And out of its doors is pouring this avalanche of Nazi leprechauns. And one of them's wielding <laughs> a bullwhip. And, and I read it and... It's not the greatest book, but it definitely lives up to the cover. Um, And um, the Nazi leprechauns turn out to be um, homunculi engineered in concentration camps during World War II by Nazi scientists to be sex workers in clubs for Gestapo officers. But when the war ends and the Reich falls, they swim over to Ireland where they set up in this castle's basement. And when it gets transformed into a and b by this woman and man who inherit it, you know, hijinks ensue. Um, so it's good stuff. Um, and so there's a company, there's a publisher called Tor and they have a website that's very frequently updated. And I had a history of writing articles for them. And I said, Hey, I'd like to write articles about these crazy paperbacks. I'm just sort of randomly reading. And it was like 25 bucks a pop. But if I did one of those a week, that was like a hundred dollars a month. And some months that was grocery money. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, um, so I started writing that and my editor at Quirk, Jason called me up one day and he's like, you know, I don't think we'd pick it up, but you should pitch like these, a book of these articles to Quirk. He's like, I would love to even just read the pitch. He's like, I think these things are hilarious and, and I don't think we'd go for it, but do it. And so I put a pitch together and sent it in and they went for it. And there were two problems, which were, I didn't know enough to write this book and Also, I was between books on my contract and they really didn't want to slow down on that. And they didn't want this book to be on my contract because they didn't want to give me like the contract to be over too soon. So I had to do this book. Books usually take about a year, start to finish. I had about 10 months to do this book. And so I got this guy, Will Erickson, to sort of come on board. And Will ran a blog called Too Much Horror Fiction, where he really knew more than I did about these books. And so... For about six weeks, I was just reading, and Will and I were just talking like two or three times a week, like, is there a story here? Is there a narrative here? And what we finally figured out is that, yes, in 1967, Rosemary's Baby appeared, and in 71, you got The Exorcist in a book called Thomas Tryon, and they were the first horror novels to hit the New York Times bestseller list and become these big hits. They had movies that became cultural touchstones, launched this huge boom that was a especially noticeable in paperback. I mean, it was also a time when paperbacks were taking off. This huge horror boom happened and books came out that just 
kicked the boom, you know, up another notch. You know, you had in 74 Jaws with, with the film as well, and that kicked off these animal attack books. You had the movie of The Omen, which the novelization became a huge hit, which launched a wave of killer kid books. You had the Amityville Horror in 76, which, you know, there was a huge wave of haunted house books coming off of that. Um, and then you get the 80s when it's all just blockbusters. It's King and D.C. Andrews and Anne Rice. And then you get into the 90s, which after the success of Silence of the Lambs gets more and more into serial killers. There's a bunch of trends that converge. And it becomes this overproduction bubble that sort of explodes in this big wet splat of overproduction and falling sales and just gross gory books that sinks under its own body weight in like 94. And all these like lines that have been started go out of business one after the other, like, like kids at a summer camp getting knocked off by Jason. So we had an arc. And we just had to fill in the, 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 the blanks. And that meant I had to read a lot. I think I read, gosh, between 220 and 300 and something books in that period uh, just to write this book. And, um, and, you know, Will and I pulled it off and it, and it worked. But, man, that was, that was a rough 10 months. <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> and the worst thing was my wife, who's a chef, would go into work. And she'd leave the house at like 9.30 in the morning and I'd be on the couch reading paperbacks. And she'd come back at like, you know, midnight and I'm on the couch reading paperbacks. She's got burns and cuts. She's like, <laughs> what are you doing? I'm like, I'm working. Paper, I got paper cuts. Like, this is hard work. It's a she had no empathy for my plight. I can imagine. It's a, it's a difficult hustle to explain to somebody who's, who's uh, working a kitchen all day long trying to make a go of a restaurant. Very tough <laughs> business unto itself, graphic novel or not. But, you know, man, I, I love that story. I love that, you know, how this begins, that, that, uh, that fascination with the paperback shops, exchange stores, uh, which, which is a business model I do not understand. The math just makes no sense to me whatsoever. None. But there was one that was uh, absolutely transformative in my life as well. My, my indoctrination into the world of, of literature, of book selling, of publishing, all of that came by way of a comic book shop slash paperback exchange in the tiny little town of Winthrop Harbor on Lake Michigan, uh, where I grew up in Illinois. I still remember the name of the bookseller, uh, Eileen, and I met her years, years later at Sorobi, the Chicago International Remainder and Book Overstock Expo. It's where books go to either die or, or get the second life in the, in the remainder business, which also is a business model that makes very little sense to me. The math doesn't add up <laughs> there either. But, you know, at that point, as, as someone who had been working in publishing for about 10 years, I got to got to see Elaine again and thank her and explain to her what that shop and her ability to hand sell things to me that I was interested in and sort of escalate my reading level and my immersion into genres that were important to me as a kid really opened doors that for me that never would have opened otherwise. So, you know, th those stores... Uh, mystery of their operations aside, those stores really do serve an important uh, mission in our community of literature, and I'm glad they're they're still out there. But you know, I mean, that's where I discovered what Vampire Beat and all of the vampire detective novels oh, yeah. that were popular yeah. for about a half minute. Vampire Chronicles, and this and this is uh, this is leads to my question. Finally, this is the most long winded question of the interview, I promise. But what what I don't quite understand, but nonetheless fascinates me about horror, is the strangeness of it. There seems to be no idea that cannot manifest itself in a book, 
And part of that uh, I would attribute to the fact that uh, the audience for horror fiction is simply inexhaustible. There, there is no writer or indeed pantheon of writers that can produce books fast enough to, to satiate the hunger of that. And there are other genres that are like that, romance and mystery, but there seems to be less variety among what makes it into published form in those genres versus, versus horror, which just seems to be you know, all over the place at different periods. Why is that? Why, why can you go anywhere and do anything and turn it into a horror novel? Well, before I answer that, I've got to know what the name of Elaine's store was. Sure. Galaxy of Books. I hope it still exists books, uh, in a tiny little town in Winthrop Harbor, a little beach resort town now, as far north in Illinois as you can go without being in Wisconsin. Um, okay. So horror. Yes. So the thing with horror that's interesting to me is um, – Horror is just reality, but not boring. Like I was a huge <laughs> sci-fi nut as a kid, but as I got older, I had a harder time relating to it. Like it's other planets. It's in the future. I wanted to read about here and now. And you could get into, you know, I was really into men's adventure fiction as a kid and military fiction. Um, but uh, that inevitably, you know, there were only so many beats you could hit with that, right? People had to get killed. And so horror was where I started gravitating to, because like you said, the metaphors just get crazy. And I don't know exactly what it is, except horror really shouldn't be a genre. You know what I mean? Like romance makes sense as a genre. Like you can have, you know, you can divide, you can have regencies and gothics and nurses and all those little subdivisions in there, but they all are inherently about a man and a woman or, or two women or two men, however it is, falling in love, basically, and the obstacles to that. Horror. Horror is about Nazi leprechauns in a and b in Ireland. No, wait. Horror is about a vampire rock star who's 14 years old, and he ultimately crawls into the giant living disembodied vagina of Mother Earth, which consumes him. No, horror is about a haunted train platform in Connecticut. Like, it's it shouldn't be a single genre. I mean, it's a little like science fiction in that way, right? It can just do anything. I mean, and there's historical horror and sci-fi horror, but the metaphors just get so wild. And, and I think a part of that comes from sort of like the genetics of horror were really to a large extent. I mean, a lot of them that we live with now were shaped in the 70s and 80s during the paperback boom. And that was an era when it was, okay, medical thrillers are the big deal. I need a medical thriller stat, but it can't be like the other ones, but it has to kind of be just like them. So you liked coma about people being put in medically induced comas to steal their internal organs. What if I did something about called heads about people using supercomputers, but instead they're hooking up human brains to it. So it's these big computers with heads sticking off the side of them. Great. I need that by Thursday. You know what I mean? I think it was just like that sort of like particle accelerator pace that it was moving at was really something that, that stuck with the DNA of horror. And still continues to, to this day. I mean, it's, and it's what the audience has come to expect or audiences, I should say plural, because there's certainly more than one is, is there so much variety within horror as well. Let's talk about how you as a reader uh, first came to be introduced into horror. Where, where did that begin for you? 
Well, it's weird because I didn't read that much horror growing up. I actually thought the covers were kind of gross and they kind of freaked me out. Like they just seemed like something dirty to have in my house. I didn't want them. <laughs> so, so I read everything else, but like, you know, like most kids, I had um, – like, so when I was very young, I think like six and seven years old, we lived in England for a little over a year. My dad was working over there, and we rented this house, and they had this Reader's Digest book in it called um, uh, Folklore and Legends of Great Britain. And, man, that thing, you opened it up, and it was like witches being hung and people in gibbets and – you know, just horrible monsters slithering out of the muck. And I was fascinated. And it was the same time when the Tom Baker Doctor Who years were on TV. And that was just like rubber monsters left, right, and center. And so I was familiar with it. And I was really into like mythology and folk tales and ghost stories kind of thing. And I actually had um, a carpool driver, Rhett Thurman, the, the painter, um, she was a friend of mine's mom and she, in order to keep us all quiet, would tell ghost stories on the way to school. And a lot of them were sort of like, um, you know, the, the, the crusty old ghost stories we've all heard, you know, over and over the local ones. And she'd add bits to them and things. And I'd encounter them later in books. And, um, and that was really the first time I was like, okay, like, look at this. Everyone's fascinated. This is the same one we heard two weeks ago, but she's added this to it. But it was really great. And that really, like, stuck with me. And it became something we, I sort of looked forward to is, is Rhett's ghost stories uh, in Carpool. Um, so I wasn't, it wasn't alien to me, but it was like I wasn't reading a lot of it. And then when I was about 11, I guess, because it was like 86, so maybe I was 13, um, I, I sort of encountered Stephen King. My sister had a, a copy of Night Shift, the short story collection. And then I got a copy of, I think, It for my birthday. And, and then after that, it was sort of like, okay, well, there's Stephen. Then there's, you know, we rented a, a beach house that had some Clive Barker books left over there. And I read those. And, um, and then I saw, you know, those Arkham editions in the late 80s, those first hardcover, actual, real versions of H.P. Lovecraft. They started appearing in libraries. And so I, I read those. And so I read, and it was like an English class, right? You'd, you'd have to read a bunch of boring junk like Nathaniel Hawthorne, but then you'd read Edgar Allan Poe and be like, oh man, that's kind of way cooler. Um, and so, uh, and I actually like Nathaniel Hawthorne now because I'm old, but like at the time, Poe was where it was at. So it was really this sort of just hodgepodge. And it wasn't until much later, I think, that I really started to read a lot of horror. And I think that was probably in my like 30s when I was like, I really, you know, this stuff is, I, I like it a lot. And, um, but I didn't read Stephen King for like 15 or 20 years for a while. And um, so, and, and it really was, I was writing stuff that was weird. The stuff I was writing was weird probably horror but it was more sort of somewhere in the middle and as i realized that people liked the stuff that was horror more that's what i leaned into thank god you did you know i i watched your uh your virtual launch event about i guess a week and a day ago and i oh, was yeah. fascinated uh, uh this is a, a show uh that you put on for uh, bucks and books and and will be offering you know, again in other contexts but I was fascinated by the history of murder books, not just not just horror, but you know the amount of time that we as a culture have spent telling ourselves stories about killings in the hopes of avoiding being killed. And it's, right. uh, it, 
it's changed my perspective too about at what point I started reading those those kinds of books and why. I mean, it, one I think one needs a sense of of mortality to uh, to appreciate what's going on in the world of horror, in the world of of mystery novels, in the world of of thrillers, of everything that has that sort of life and death risk to it. Uh, and and I'd love for you to explain. You know, why you indeed have a show that discusses this, why you don't spend an hour just talking about the book that is duly out, but, but why uh, you've done this a couple of times now that I've seen where you really do, uh, and I won't say academic because that makes people think it's boring, but a really smartly put together contextual overview of the world and the culture that gives rise to, uh, to whatever book it is you ultimately want to talk about. Where did that concept, uh, that approach to... Uh, to doing these events come from? You know, so three places. One is part of it's being a journalist, but I really learned like everything comes from somewhere. You can't write a sentence in a book that says, at that time, books about murder were popular and they arose a great wave of them. No, there's a first one. Someone wrote the first one. Someone wrote the second one. Someone got those published. And where that concept was really driven home to me is in 98, 99, two of my friends from high school decided to make, one of them decided to make a documentary. Another one and I came on board about the Confederate flag, which was at that time still flying over the South Carolina State House. And we spent three months that summer, driving everywhere and talking to everyone and doing these interviews. And, and the director, Ryan Ducey, my friend, he, he wound up working on it for, for years after that. But the bulk of the documentary uh, was from that time. And the, the quest was, where does this flag come from? And why is it flying over the statehouse? And we managed to track down sort of the exact where that flag came from, when it got popular. And we managed to talk to one of the people who the only one left alive who voted to put it up over the statehouse. And it was like, instead of conjecture, we got the facts. And that always was like, you just dig far enough, you get the story. And um, if anyone's, we actually wound up selling that to PBS and it's now available free on uh, YouTube under the name uh, Confederacy um, and I'm, I'm inordinately proud of it because it really captured a moment in South Carolina history. Um, so, so I really liked figuring things out, where stuff comes from. The other part of it is that after doing the first book events for Horror Store, I swore I would never do them again. It was <laughs> like, you know, I did the first one and my publisher blessed bless them. They're like, we've got this launch day event. It's a great bookstore in Pennsylvania. It's, it's really well done, blah, blah, blah. Great. So I rent a car and I drive to this bookstore. And I drive and drive and drive. I'm on like two lane roads through the hills. I go and go and I get to this beautiful store, nice little town. Great. I go in. They got 30 chairs set up and there is one person sitting in it. And so showtime begins. I'm going to talk about horror store, talk about Ikea's. And, and I say to the person, you know, you're the only person here. I'm like, I'm going to be a good, I'm like, we can just have a conversation. And, you know, I don't have to like lecture at you or do read at you. We could just talk. I'm really glad you came. And she said, oh my goodness, I, I'm just sitting, I am just sitting down. I came, you know, I just saw the chairs and I really have had a long day. And I said, well, I'd still love to tell you about the book. She was like, well, I'm not really that interested and walked off. 
And so the bookstore got the staff. They forced the staff to sit there. And the register was right behind me. And so every time someone had to make a sale, the staff would go. It was awful. And I had a few of those and vowed I would never do it again. And so I started awkwardly developing some kind of – because I really – the third thing was I'm a huge 19th century history buff. And, you know, public lectures were entertainment in the 19th century. And they were things hundreds of thousands or thousands of people would go. And I was like, you know, why can't that be fun? Why can't that be – interesting. Why can't that be funny to take that format and do something ridiculous with it? Um, and I sort of awkwardly putting that together. And it really took off with paperbacks from hell. I mean, songs and slides and all that garbage. It was so much fun. Um, so yeah, it's just, and it's just a blast. You know, I love figuring this stuff out and researching it. And it, it gives me an excuse to ask people questions and, and call people up and say, yeah, well, you wrote this article and I'd really like to ask you about it and things like that. I, it's, I, I love doing it. It's that journalistic mindset paying off too. And I wonder if this helps you with the sort of time displacement we were talking about earlier, that by the time oh, yeah. a book comes out, you're on to the next one. So to have you know a project, to have something that you need to develop as uh, as a lecture, as a performance, as you know, something that really defies description, but is un- in unquestionably a good time. I enjoyed the hell out of what I saw. Uh, uh, really does sort of give you a different lens through which you can you can reapproach the material. It, you know, it, seems, I, it seems wonderfully more enjoyable than watching an hour long commercial for a book I already have bought <laughs> or know I'm going to buy. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's interesting when you put it that way, because I actually think you're right. And that hadn't crossed my mind before, because what happens is I write the book and then usually about three months before it comes out, I start doing the research for the show to put the show Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And because that's a lot of other reading and watching and all that stuff. So, yeah, it actually is. a. you're, You're right. It does serve as a nice way to sort of focus in on that sort of involve that time displacement. Wow. You're, mm-hmm. man, you're good at this. <laughs> Pat Conroy's publicists and publishers used to be infuriated with him because he would go out on book tour uh, for the book that's just come out and, and not say a single word about it. He would want to talk about the one he was writing because that was the one he was in love with <laughs> at that moment, you know, and that would be three to nine years uh, before it would be out. So that's, that's, that's not particularly good timing from a marketing standpoint. Uh, but but he had the same issue, you know, that the, the published book was done and had been done for a while. And that's not where his imagination was. So I, yeah. I think you kind of solved the riddle by, by developing an, another kind of project that is enjoyable for you and for the audience that uh, that serves to promote the book, but isn't exclusively that. Yeah, and it's also, you know, I really love being out on the road and meeting people. I really do. I like doing interviews. Interviews really help me sort of focus my thinking on things. Um, I like talking to people. I like meeting people. I like saying thank you for buying my book. Like I am, I'm, I came to this late. I mean, I was in my forties before I signed a book deal and like, I am enormously grateful that, you know, if this doesn't work out, I don't have a fallback plan. So I'm enormously grateful to readers. And I like, go into bookstores. I like meeting people who sell books for a living. And I like that people come to these shows and they, they have a good time. You know what I mean? I love that. It's, it's so much fun to give people a night out that they enjoy. Um, you know, I ran this film festival with some friends of mine for, for many years in New York, the New York Asian film festival. And it was, and, and the first night 
we did it. We were like, oh, crap. Someone has to introduce the movie. And no one wanted to do it. And I was like, oh, hell, I'll do it. And so I did it. And after I did a few very awkward ones, I was like, you know what? Everyone is so stiff. I need to prove to these people that they're allowed to have fun and that they're not the dumbest person in the room because I am. And after that, man, I introduced movies in diapers. I introduced movies in (laughs) tiger suits. I introduced movies in dressed as a cow. Like it was so much fun. And it was just a blast to be like, you are now going to see a movie that all of us love. We're going to get to watch you watching that movie. And we're going to prep you for that movie to have a blast. And so it's just sort of that thing carried over. I like being a host. You know, it's fun. And it's infectious for, for a good audience. It translates. It brings people to the party who, uh, who wouldn't be there otherwise. And they remember that and they'll come back for that. There are book signings, uh, book presentations, I should say, that, that I've, I've slogged through where I've, you know, I, I enjoy the book. I'm glad somebody wrote it. It's important to me to get a signature and to thank the author for writing it. But the last thing in the world I want is, is to listen to that particular author talk for an hour. And, and that yeah. is not at all my experience uh, with the way that you've handled this. And, and it's wonderful to hear sort of where that came from, the progression of that. So let's talk before we run out of time here about the progression of, uh, of the newest novel of Final Girl Support Group. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about where uh, the concept, the idea came from and sort of how that took shape to be a story, not just of, of one woman, but of many women. Yeah, well, there's sort of two places this comes from. And, and so the first and obvious one is I had a friend in, in the years when I was freelancing and doing stuff, I had a friend I wrote screenplays with. And like every now and then he and I would get a gig for like $2,000 to write a movie about androids for this special effects house. And, you know, we, we did that kind of thing for a while. And like, it was, it was, we actually wrote a couple of good scripts, but man, it was, it was hard. And uh, without Nick, I, I it was, would not have stuck with it for as long, but it was like with someone else partnering, it's embarrassing to quit. You know, you're like, I'm not going to quit before he quits. Um, <laughs> and one day I was like, Oh man, you know, it'd be a great title final girl support group. And it's a support group for final movies. And it could be all shot in one place. And he was like, yeah, that doesn't sound very good and I was like ah man and and I brought it up a few times and his enthusiasm his lack of enthusiasm was uh infectious but I kept thinking about it and so I looked at the first um document for this and it's dated like January 9th 2014 so I wrote it and tried to sell it and it was the same week that Riley Sager's Final Girls came out when I was trying to sell it to my editor and so he really wasn't in the market for that. I tried to sell it again a couple of years later, it didn't work and finally I had trunked it and my manager was like, do you have anything like just in a drawer I can try to sell because book writing takes forever and I want to be out there hustling. And I showed him this, he's like, you should take this back out. And so I worked on it with him and my agent and really took it back out and sold it in like December, 2019. But this also comes sort of from an earlier place. So back in 1981, I was a Cub Scout. So this is like 40 years ago, basically. And I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies. And so I would read like the comic book adaptations or the Mad Magazine adaptations to pretend I'd seen them. And 
uh, after Cub Scout meetings, we'd go to the Oasis gas station for snacks. I convinced the Scoutmaster that I could buy magazines with the snacks, and I bought Sangoria, the horror movie magazine. And one of the, the first one I bought, because I could read it and like learn about these horror movies I was allowed to see and then pretend I'd seen them in Carpool. Carpool was very pivotal to me. And one, the first one I picked up was a cover story, uh, Sango 12, I think, cover story on F- Friday the 13th Part 2. And in that movie, Adrian King, the final girl from Part 1, is starts off the movie and you think she's going to be the final girl and the main character in Part 2. And she's just chilling in her apartment. She's recovering from Part 1. It was pretty bad all killed she had to decapitate Ms. Voorhees and she's you know you're like oh, okay you're you're putting your life back together good for you and all of a sudden Jason appears and ice picks her in the head and she dies and it blew my mind I was like eight and I was like this idea that they could do that that all these bad things had happened to her and she'd survived and she was okay and then she just gets killed and it was sort of so casually cruel and awful and it made me start thinking about these final girls outside the context like what were they doing when the movie wasn't happening and then years later in 87 i think i saw nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors and in that movie heather langenkamp the final girl from nightmare on elm street 1 suddenly reappears and she's leading a group therapy session for kids who are being terrorized by freddy who are the main characters of part three and i was like whoa what if these characters from horror movies, they can go into other horror movies and help those characters? And those two things always stuck with me and always really made me think about what's outside the movie. Um, and one of the things that was really, really nice is I actually sent Final Girl Support Group to Adrian King. Um, it's sort of a thank you because I name a character after her. And, um, and she really loved the book. And wound up, we she wanted to do the audio book. We're actually they were they were giving me clips from narrators. They were auditioning to do the audio book, and they were all good. They were all fine, but they they didn't have like they they just lacked something. They were good narrators, but they were doing a job. And it hit me. I was like, I called Adrian. I was like, Have you ever done any voiceover work? She's like, Yeah, I'm an additional dialogue looper. That is my profession. And so we got her this audition and really talked her up. And so they, we got her hired to do the audiobook for Final Girl Support Group, which was really gratifying because she loved doing it. And the fact that she's so passionate about it is so nice. It's nice that when someone listens to the audiobook, they're just getting something a little extra. You know, they're getting this woman who has this experience. They've got my background with her. And one thing that was really um you know, weird to me is like Adrian had a rough experience being a final girl. And, and it was really gratifying to me that reading this book and doing the audio book of it, she said, like, gave her a way to look at her experience kind of differently. And, and it helped her put a little bit of a bow on it in a way, uh, not in any great way. I didn't change her life, but it was just a really good, as she put it, experience for her. So it was nice to go kind of full circle from this eight-year-old kid standing in the gas station looking at this woman he's never met and wanting to sort of write a different ending to her story and getting to do that like 40 years later. It's, it's weird how this business works. Little coincidences and things like that seem to happen with, a, with eerie frequency. 
That is serendipity, and, and that uh, Pat yeah. Conroy believed wholeheartedly in the importance of that. He, he talked about it and wrote about Did it in, in any number of novels because he experienced yeah. it so many times in his life. The moment when a person or a place or the unsolved riddle or the unsolved problem would, would represent itself to you later in life, and you'd get a chance to do something about it. And, and here you've done that. And I love that. What a wonderful experience for Adrian King as well. What a wonderful thing for you to have, to have shared and, and brought into her life now also. And I noticed in, in the course of, uh, of reading Final Girl Support Group that there were these uh, Easter eggs, as we would call them now, where characters in the novel share a first name or a last name with someone who's associated with a final girl, Adrian Butler and Adrian King, uh, the character of Heather DeLuca and Heather Langenkamp, and Julia Campbell uh, shares a last name with Nev Campbell. And I would hope right now that there are readers out there dissecting uh, your novel, you know, looking for every single one of those and guessing at, at which ones uh, – are your uh, you've done intentionally and which ones they're sort of discovering that may or may not be intentional. But uh, this in turn leads me to a question. Uh, what you've done with the characters, with, with the final girls in the novel, seems to encompass not only the kinds of experiences that their on-screen counterparts would have had as characters in, in films that we're familiar with, but also with experiences that those actresses would have had and, and how they were perceived and discarded or, or treated by audiences and by the business over time. And I'm wondering uh, if if I, that's just me reading that or if you've done that intentionally, if your final girls really are sort of happy, uh, redemptive marriage, let's say, of the experiences of both the characters and the actresses who played those characters. Yeah, it's interesting because when I started writing the book, no, that didn't occur to me. But as I was wrapping up writing it and like because I did a huge rewrite on it in in, uh, in, in 2020 and yeah, in 2020, um, I did two, one in the spring and one in the summer. Um, one of the things I realized was that a final girl in a horror movie has something terrible happen to her when she's a teenager and kind of has to live in the shadow of it for the rest of her life. Like it will be a part of her life moving forward. And this monster, this Jason or this Freddie or this Michael Myers, whoever it is in the movie, this, this horror icon, she will have this weird relationship with that character for the rest of her life. And it is the same for these actresses, um, you know, like, well, and there I go, I blended the two right there. The, the, the women in the book, the final girls will have a relationship with these killers for the rest of their lives. The actresses do too. They, they're in these movies when they're 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. And this, it's just a job. And that job will be part of their lives forever moving forward. It may help them get work. It may stop them from getting work because they're typecast. They will have to have this relationship with this horror movie franchise character for the rest of their lives. They will be asked questions about it. People will make assumptions about them based on it. It's a really interesting parallel, and it didn't occur to me until I was well into writing the book. But then, of course, I, I, I plussed it up wherever I could. <laughs> It, it works so beautifully, um, and it's something that adds an extra dimension to these characters, too, this sort of this blurring of what we know as viewers or readers of, of the stories that you're drawing from are, are simply those who've encountered these stories by way of the way they permeate pop culture. 
but also adding this layer of, you know, what happens after and what continues mm-hmm. to happen and the weight that you carry. You mentioned earlier that you were doing rewrites uh, during, uh, during 2020. And this uh, really becomes sort of an essential lens for how I read the book. And I think how a lot of folks are reading it too. Th- this is a book very much about, about what happens after a horror novel, how, how one, or a, a horror movie, how one continues to live after carrying the weight of this trauma and having lost and, and, experience uh, such a deep sense of loss. And here we are as, as a country, as a planet coming out of a pandemic. And, and I think the final girls, as you've written them, have a lot to tell us about how to navigate this particular moment too. But I'm wondering what it was like for you writing and rewriting during the pandemic. Really weird and really good. It got me through it. Um, and, and hopefully it is over. I feel like we're having a, a bit of a sequel restarting here. It's like a franchise reboot. Um, we are. The monster always we, comes back, as we know. Always. Um, but so I, I was really rock solid on the last two paragraphs of the book, almost from the beginning. 2014 to now, it almost didn't change. But getting there was – getting there, I always knew I was faking it a little bit. I knew that the book – I was doing some hand waving and, and the ending was like a B minus ending. And that always bummed me out. And one of the reasons I went with the publisher I did at Berkeley is because Jess Wade, my editor pointed out a problem with the book that no one else had noticed. And I hadn't noticed. And um, I was like, Oh my God, you're absolutely right. I had a complete blind spot about this. And so I, I sat down to do rewrites in 2020 and that was sort of as the pandemic was beginning and then sent him over and she, you know, sent me back notes and things and, and I, and I, and, and sent me back copy edits and copy edits. You're really not supposed to do a huge rewrite, but for some reason I suddenly realized as I sort of started working on the copy edits, what to do with the last third of the book. And I, and I extensively rewrote it um, and, and really changed it into what it is now. And, I had to go down to South Carolina. My mom got really sick in August. So I went down to South Carolina and I was doing these rewrites during that second wave of the pandemic in in my mom's spare bedroom. And it was really weird because I was taking this main character, Lynette, who was so traumatized. She'd become this sort of shut-in agoraphobe who was scared to go outside. We're going to the supermarket, took this like massive military planning where any stranger she met could get her killed. So she kept her distance from them where she didn't trust other locations that weren't her house. And that was known to her where she had to take elaborate precautions just to open her front door. And here I was living this and we all were living this. And I was able to sort of take her from that to a better place where she got through it. And she didn't get through it by being smart or coming up with a solution or really doing anything but refusing to give up, just refusing to stop going, which is the final girl thing, right? They're not particularly the best people in the movie, but they survive because they don't slow down. They don't, you know, they're pulling themselves up into that hayloft and they don't quit. They just keep going. And that, as I wrote it, it was really, as I finished it up, I was like, that's what I got to do. 
just keep going. And I feel like we've emerged into 2021 and there is this element of sort of looking over our shoulders and one and, and kind of seeing the people we lost. And there's, there's been this trend that really disturbs me. Um, I was doing a, a conversation with another author whose name I won't mention. And I asked them, this was sort of in 2020. And I said, you know, are you working on anything right now? And they're like, yeah. And I said, is it a contemporary book? And they're like, yeah. And I said, yeah, me too. And Final Girls had actually been set in 2020. And I actually, during the pandemic, bumped it back to 2010 because I was like, mm. I didn't want it to be about COVID and the pandemic. And I, you couldn't write about 2020 without writing about the pandemic. And this other author says, well, not really. I mean, I don't really put in sort of trends in my book. You know, I, I'm trying to write about like the world. I don't really want to write about these sort of like, you know, whatever's happening that week. And I thought, you know, buddy, this, this might be a little more than a trend. Um, you know, this is, this is a little more than like um, everyone's wearing culottes that summer. Um, and I feel like, though, there is this instinct with all of us. I get it to take the beginning of the pandemic and the, end of the pandemic and snip out everything in between and just join up those ends. And unfortunately, that means we forget everyone we lost. We forget everything that happened. And I feel this real need, as, and especially because I write horror, and horror is the genre that sits with death. Like some books end with death. Horror is the book where death is where it starts. And mm -hmm. I feel a need to sort of say, not so fast. You know, I'm working on my novel for next year right now, and it takes place at the tail end of 2020 during a pandemic with two characters who, you know, lost their parents and, and had to do a funeral, uh, a funeral, and um, you know, that's got repercussions. And I just feel like, you know, that's what we just lived through. And maybe I'm just not creative, but I want to write about the world I live in, not an imaginary world where I've taken out all the, where I've sanded off the rough corners and, and taken out the inconvenient facts. And that's essential because we, we lose our cultural memory when we lose the stories of, of these major life altering world altering moments, even, even if they're just being, even if they're being presented as metaphor. And I think that's such an important lesson of, of the final girl that you get through it, but you have to carry it from that point on. You have to carry the weight of it, but it's a weight you can carry. It's something Absolutely. That, that can become a part of you. Um, that that you don't forget it, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be the only thing that defines you. And Lynette is a fascinating character uh, because she's an unreliable narrator, which I absolutely love. And you know, your novel opens, and we get the sense that she's trying to have her Sarah Connor moment, right? She's gonna she's gonna right. make herself a super warrior, and she can take on anything, but. But she actually can't. It's not, you know, a successful transformation into uh, Sarah Connor mode. But nonetheless, she gets through what's in front of her. She solves the riddle. She gets through and she ends up and, and um, you know, we'll keep this spoiler free, but she ends up in a really interesting spot at the end of, of the novel, one that I didn't necessarily see coming. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, you know, the thing with Lynette is she has this very macho image of things when the book starts. It's the image I have all the time. I am tough. I am hard. I can, I can make myself hard enough to deal with anything, to fight anything. And there's one thing I've learned in life, and, and it's sort of where I take Lynette, which is that 
life's too hard, man. We, none of us can do this alone. Just, just, it's impossible. It is totally impossible. And I have relatives and, and friends, people I know who I've seen try to do it alone. And I've seen life just chew them up and spit them out. It's too much. And we can't. And so one of the things that was so interesting during the pandemic is, you know, in New York, we were, you know, we really locked down. And every night at 730, everyone would open their windows and do this big cheer and bang on pots for healthcare workers. And that started becoming this focus mm. of your day. You know what I mean? Like you started like, and, and just this sort of brief moment of contact with these arms sticking out of windows and this noise those stupid zoom calls with, with your mom, you know, where, where she, she, you know, had her thumb over the camera half the time and, and you spent most of it trying to get her to unmute these ridiculous cocktails with friends where, you know, you'd be, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you click leave meeting and it's just you and your apartment with your laptop but for an hour. It was normal again. There were people. Um, one of the things I really did during the pandemic is I was watching movies but I stopped watching new movies and I started watching a lot of movies from the seventies. And I realized one of the reasons I was doing it is because the seventies was an era where there were movies had so many more close-ups of faces and it was lumpy, weird, not polished. The eighties faces started getting a lot more polished, but the seventies, it was like this moment with this new Hollywood cinema movement where it was like really just everyday people faces, which are ugly faces by, you know, my face by Hollywood standards. And I just wanted to see real people's faces. You know, it was, I think we were all hungry for that, for other, for each other. In a way that's, you know, I think some of us feel a little sweaty and embarrassed about coming out of it. And I don't think we should. No, those connections, those those moments where it's everything else just sort of goes away and it's it's person to person. And yeah, a connection is forged that that wouldn't be there in, in the absence of having a quiet but nonetheless heartfelt moment with it, with another human being. And that's what, you know, that's what I see in these moments where the support group is gathering. These are the only women who could possibly understand one, each, one another and how fortunate they are to get to, to get to share these moments. And as Lynette says uh, early in the novel, you know, which turned out to be such a, an oddly uplifting phrase, when the monsters come, we help each other. And I freely confess, I did not uh, open up the final girl support group expecting it to be as uplifting and inspirational as it was in the end. And I, I think that's the lens of the pandemic. I think that's the experience through which uh, I'm reading it that, that kind of adds that extra layer or amplifies something that's on the page there. Yeah, I wanna, well, I mean, that, oh, go ahead. yeah, and I, I was just going to say, I can't do an unhappy ending. You know, I just can't <laughs> do it. Like, people may get to the end of my books and they don't have all their limbs. They're not who they thought they were. They're not where they thought they would be, but I can't do the bleak ending. It's, 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 I, I've gone to too many funerals. I just, to not, to not know that there's tomorrow, you know, uh, a friend of mine lost their kids. And one of the things they said to me that always stuck with me was the worst part of it is, that life goes on and that you get over it because mm. you think after this happens, the world will stop. They'll turn off the lights. You know, the carousel will just get switched up and it doesn't, you wake up the next day. And I feel like if I ended a book with some kind of nihilistic bleak ending, 
I just ended it too soon. I'm, I'm sort of playing into a cliche or, and, and something that's not really sort of, of this sort of affect. And you've got to keep going. Where, where are they the next day? And the next, where do they wind up? And that's where I want to go. It works so well. And this was true of uh, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires as well, which, which you know, ends in, in perhaps a, a, a brighter spot than people might expect if they're not familiar with your ability to do this in your novels. We've been given the blessing to go a little bit over tonight, so we've got about oh, six great. minutes of, of recording time left, which I'm, I'm very happy uh, to make good use of, uh, because there's something I mentioned in your introduction that we've not gotten to yet, and I definitely want to. Within the last 24 hours, I would say, you've been able to share the very good news that Final Girl Support Group is in development uh, with HBO Max, I believe, but, but it's not the only one of your, your novels to be in some stage of adaptation for TV or for film, and I would absolutely welcome whatever information you, you want to share about where things stand uh, with those developments. Yeah. Yeah, so so Final Girl Support Group just got announced, uh, which is which was so nice. Just got announced this. Um, it's uh, going to be a series on HBO Max. Uh, Charlie's Theron and her production company Denver and Delilah are producing it. Um, the last show they did was Mind Hunter. It was on Netflix, so it's, so I feel like I'm in good hands. And uh, Andy and Barbara Machete, who were responsible for the It movies, are going to do the development and 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 direct the pilot. Uh, which is really nice because that sort of sets the tone for the series. Um, so I feel like they, they know something about horror. Um, and then uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism is in post-production now. It's going to be, I think, streaming on Amazon. It's a feature film. And the thing that's so great for that is uh, Chris Landon came on board as the producer and co-writer, the guy who did Happy Death Day and um, – and, and he's really got good horror chops. But the thing I love is that the star of it playing Abby is uh, Elsie Fisher, who is the star of Eighth Grade, the movie that Bo Burnham directed, mm. which is mm-hmm. one of the best movies about being a teenager I've ever seen. And so having her in this, I feel like is so I'm so lucky. Um, I am currently writing the screenplay for Horror Store. They just sent me an email today. Where's where's our Where's our revision? Uh, it's going to be a feature film from New Republic, who are the folks who produced Black Swan in 1917. And then um, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires is going to be uh, a TV series. Uh, it was with the Amazon, and now it's getting set up somewhere else. Uh, just their option expired. They, they, we never quite found a way to crack it in a way they were happy with, but we're setting up somewhere else with partners we're really, really psyched about, but can't announce yet. So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of stuff. And the nice thing about this is that um, the Hollywood money is thin book money. And it's allowed me to do really crazy, crazy stuff like get health insurance. Um, and that's <laughs> been, been really, really nice. Um, it's the, I think this year in April was the first year my wife and I've had health insurance in about three or four years. So that was, that was a good feeling. I bet. I bet it was. And congratulations on every single good thing happening. I mean, what a, what an incredible moment for you at this point in your career to have books and a following, but now have the be right on the cusp of when the next big thing happens and get to, to get to see these characters in a in a different format and reach a new audience too. 
Conroy, you know, loved every movie that was made of his novels. And when people complained that, that they weren't perhaps what they were expecting, he would point at a shelf and say they didn't change the word of the book. There it is. Uh, my friend Ron Rash has had these kinds of experiences as well. And, and I can't, cannot wait to see uh, what form these series and the films take. But my question for you along those lines is, particularly for those that are being developed as TV series, what happens after the, the plot of the book is covered? Do you have ideas for where these characters go after that for season two and three or for sequel two and three in the case of the films? Yeah. I mean, you know, I am a gruesome overwriter. So like Southern book club <laughs> has probably three versions of that book, two complete novels that have the same characters, have the same some of the same incidents, but are radically different books before I got to the third version that I then wrote and rewrote and rewrote to get to the version that, that's on the shelves. So I've got so much other material um, and background material and, and all this stuff and all these roads not taken that um, just that that could just go forever. I mean, that's just something where I really built out the world. And it's the same with uh, Final Girl Support Group. I mean, I had to develop all the film franchises these women are all these crazy things in their lives before they get to where they are just yeah. to know it in my head. So yeah, it's, um, I write too much. And so the TV shows are a really, really nice way to have that not be wasted. Final Girl Support Group uh, really did feel like, you know, sort of six novels in one because of the, the backstories, <laughs> because of the, yeah. the world building that goes on for these characters and, to make it feel as complete as if you had actually seen that movie or read that book. Uh, but here you are in uh, in the book that's in your hand where you're, you're, you know, these characters are coming together in their, in their way, but, but they have these rich backstories and I would love to see, you know, how that, how that plays out over the course of the series. Uh, we are running very close to out of time right now. And I want to mention uh, just one thing in closing. I've had the really wonderful experience of reading your books uh, with audiences who who would never, ever self-identify as horror readers and maybe had never read another horror book other than yours in, in, that they can remember. In the case of Final Girls, uh, excuse me, in the case of Southern Book Club, Guide to Slaying Vampires, I got to read it alongside our local chapter of the Pulpwood Queens Book Club because that novel was one of the Pulpwood Queens selections. And, and for anyone uninitiated, that's the largest book club in the U.S., about 800 chapters nationwide, a few international, uh, just an amazing group of women. But our, our local club in Beaufort uh, got to read and discuss and absolutely fall in love with Southern Book Club guide to slaying vampires and because of that they are now super excited about reading final girl support group and meeting yes. you when you come our way Buford, in october uh october 26 pat conroy's birthday uh with our friends at nevermore books so oh, i'm nice. looking forward to discussing birthday. it it was it was and is yes so the timing worked out really well for that in addition to being a couple days before halloween i think that's going to make for a good event but the Pulpwood Queens are just, I mean, they're, they're ready to reserve their seats right now. They are that excited about seeing you in October. And I hope that excitement continues when they read Final Girls, because that, that's uh, a book that you know, they, they may have a slightly different response to, but they're so on your side. They're so enthusiastic about all things Grady Hendrix that I know they're going to get behind it. 
the other audience at the other end of the, the spectrum that I got to read Final Girl Support Group with is uh, 16-year-old Holland Perryman, my protege at the Conroy Center, my intern, who's on a sort of uh, weird scenario right now that seems like it's straight out of a horror novel or would make a, a very fine one. She's on a 23-day cross-country trip, this thing called Teens Westward Bound, with 80 teenagers from across the Carolinas, most of whom have never met each other before. They're going to major U.S. landmarks. You know, and somewhere out there, somebody is writing the Mount Rushmore horror novel that involves a group <laughs> of teenagers showing up on a bus. So I like to think that reading Final Girl Support Group was me helping Holland you know, prepare her for anything that might transpire on the course of the trip. But she was completely uninitiated in, the, in slasher films, horror fiction, hadn't really experienced anything like that. And she absolutely loved the book because for her 16-year-old brain, it was the really appealing and validating idea that you can get through whatever your teenage trauma is, even if it's not a mass murder, even if it's something much smaller in scale like that, it feels like it has the same emotional weight, you can get through it. So, you know, she found the thing that she absolutely loved about the book and these characters, and she's very excited to see you when you come in October as well. So all of that, I say, by way of congratulating you for, for writing books that transcend what we may think of as the demographics of a horror readership and really do resonate with these other audiences in powerful, meaningful ways. They, they find their story. They find the story they need to find when they read your books. No, I really appreciate it. You know, and one of the things I that always bums me out is when someone doesn't read a book because it's a kind of book they don't think they'll like. I mean, mm -hmm. I did that for years and years and years and years. Um, and I really have read so much more than I ever would. I, I hate Westerns. I fell in love with Charles Portis's True Grit. I, you know, have read so many books that just I never thought would be my thing, but people have stuck them in my face and said, you need to read this. And in order to continue having a relationship with that person, I have, um, you know, and, and I've been so you know, lucky because of that. So it's really nice that people are like finding my book and it's getting them outside where they normally read and they're actually enjoying it. That makes me very mm -hmm. happy. Mm -hmm. I'm glad. And I think the existence of the TV series and the films is just going to expand that audience even more for you. And I'm very excited that that is on the horizon for you as well. So here's my, my final question tonight. In the course of you know, immersing yourself in, in horror fiction, is there a concept that you would love to read, not necessarily one you would love to write, but one you would love to read that, that you haven't found, that doesn't exist, and you would love for, it, for somebody to take up uh, the challenge of that? For example, I am, I am to this day still waiting for someone to do an absolutely brilliant werewolf astronaut book. Where is that book? I want it. And it, oh, it doesn't yeah. exist. Is there something like that yeah. for you, the, the, you know, the undiscovered country that you're waiting for someone to, uh, to see through? Yeah, well, you know, most of the books I really want to read, I'm planning on writing. But Good for you. I got to say, but there, I got to say, there is, you know, there's a book I want to write so badly, and I don't think I'm ever going to have time. But I really, really, really wish someone would write a really good history of the satanic panic uh in, mm. in america there's been books about it but a lot of them were written when it was happening and i think looking back on it now 
we lost our minds. And there are still people in prison to this day for things that were completely fabricated. And I really want to see the big overview of that. I just, I want to, I want to hear the interviews with people years later. I mean, there's a DA in San Francisco who put 21, 28, sorry, people in prison for satanic panic type crimes, almost all of them except one have been exonerated of those crimes and released early. But what's he thinking? What's going through his head now? Is he proud of his life? I, I really want someone to go back and just retrace that because I want to know what happened. You know, what happened to us? How did we do this um, to ourselves? Um, in terms of fiction, I got to say, the thing I really want to read and it used to exist, and I haven't seen it in a while, and it may just be because I've fallen out of touch a little bit with, um, with, with sort of that world. But um, I really would love to see an African-American novelist write about the Sea Islands and the tradition of hoodoo down there because mm-hmm. it's so rich and it's so intertwined with American history, and it's so part of our culture, and it's so ignored. It's not voodoo. It's hoodoo. It's, uh, it's a big deal, and it just really gets ignored, and I really want to read the great American hoodoo novel. Well, there it is. The mantle has been has been thrown down, uh, and that sounds fascinating too. As as you absolutely capture, it is a it is a huge part of the cultural experience here, and perhaps not as widely known beyond. In much the same way, the Hunley wasn't you know, a, a, a big deal to the good folks of Kansas. Let's say it may have that. Uh, Those Kansans—they—they got it the wrong way around. That's so true of that state in many ways. But yes, this uh, man, I think there are those moments. Pat Conroy believed that the stories come from everywhere and should and must. And storytellers come from everywhere, too. So hopefully the right combination of story and storyteller for that particular topic will, will find each other. In the meantime, uh, we are down to our last minute or so here, Grady. So I can't thank you enough for this conversation, and many thanks to Pam for letting us go a little over tonight. So worth the extra the extra few minutes. Uh, I've really enjoyed this, and again, congratulations on every wonderful thing happening for Final Girl Support Group and for Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. And we look forward to seeing you down in Beaufort, October 26th, with our friends at Nevermore Books. In the meantime, I will be back here on the podcast next month, August 25th, interviewing Jason Mott, uh, New York Times bestselling author of a bunch of cool things, most recently, Hell of a Book, which is definitely having a big moment right now as well. So many thanks to Grady one final time here tonight. And thanks to everybody for tuning in here for live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. (laughs) 